Thanks for downloading Development Drums. My name is Owen Bader. My guest today is Michael Clemens. Michael is a senior fellow here at the Centre for Global Development and he's also our research manager. And he's partly known for exposing grandiose claims by people running aid projects like the Millennium Villages project. Uh, but he is perhaps better known for his work on migration and the relationship between migration and development. Michael, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you so much. Now, Michael, you've said lots of smart and important things about migration, uh, but there's one that struck home particularly for me and which I want to take account of in this interview, which is your thought that very often when we talk about migration, we talk about the impact on countries, on uh, either the country from which people leave, when we talk about the brain drain and things, and we talk about the impact on the country where people arrive, the, the impact on unemployment and so on. And we will come to those, but the smart thing you said was we should focus much more than we do on the impact on the people who move, on the migrants. And so I want to kick off this discussion today by focusing on what we know about the impact of migration on, on the migrants themselves. And this is an area where you've done a lot of work. Tell us, tell us what we should know about that. To me, there is one number that really... Uh, captures this, hits me in the face when I think about it, and it, it was calculated by Branko Milanovic, a brilliant economist at the World Bank. For the first time a couple of years ago, he took microdata, individual data, on the earnings of people all over the world, and he asked this question, how much of the variance in people's incomes, how far can he get towards a perfect prediction of your income, uh, can be explained by just one thing. Uh, and that is the country you live in. And the mind-blowing answer to that question for me is 59%. So 59% of the difference between my income and that of any other random person yes. in the world can be explained by the fact that I live in the United Kingdom and they live somewhere else. And think about that for a second, Owen. We're talking about what determines your real standard of living. And this fact means not just that the country you're living and working in is more important than anything else about you. It means that the country you live and work in is more important than everything else about you right. put together. together. Right. All your effort, whether your parents are high class, low class, whether you're beautiful, ugly, smart, dumb, uh, female, male, all of those things put together explain a huge portion of the variance, but they don't come close combined to the country you live in. There's a massive inequality of opportunity in the world today. And a, a corollary of that fact is that uh, your labor, my labor, the labor of anybody on, on earth sells for different prices in different places. The, the same person doing the exact same thing can earn 300%, 800%, 1,000% differences just based on where they are doing that task. And that's remarkable. Okay, so uh, I mean, you're making a point partly framed as a, as a justice point, that it's, it's very unfair that people who, by accident of birth, are born in a poor country rather than a rich country have much lower life chances. But what, when somebody moves, when somebody migrates... What, what do we know about what happens to their income? What's the average, you know, do, do, are they um, poor people in Mexico who move to the United States and live miserable lives 
uh, as agricultural workers in the United States. What's the, you know, what, how should we think of a typical migrant and what happens to them as they move and the impact on their income and their family and so on? Well, that's the remarkable thing is that by and large people don't move for miserable lives. They, they move for lives that are much, much better than their alternative. And in the case of Mexico, uh, my co-authors Lant Pritchett at uh, Harvard and Claudio Montenegro and I have studied uh, people moving across borders to, to ask this question. You take the same person, put them in a different place, uh, doing very similar things, and how much, how much more do they earn? What is the change in their real standard of living? For Mexico, that's three times. Uh, so a, the a, average Mexican who moves to the United States earns three times more in the United States than they did in Mexico. Precisely. And it, we, the people that we analyzed were 35-year-old male urban worker with nine years of education. But uh, across the spectrum, this is, this is true, and we studied it in 42 countries. So really gigantic differences just based on the place you are. Uh, I'm not saying other things don't matter. Uh, certainly some portion of the differences in income between countries across the U.S.-Mexico border, for example, are due to things that are inside people, differences in education. Uh, you could uh, go on and on about theories, but, the, but the, the most of it has to do with place, and that, that is the remarkable fact about the world. So when we talk about development, as you've said in uh, a couple of your papers, we tend to talk about development of places. Yeah, ha to what extent has Haiti become a developed? Uh, is, is it becoming more developed? Now you say in your writing that we should focus much more on the notion that development is about improvements in people's lives, and therefore we should look at uh, the development of a population, irrespective of what ha uh, you know. In taking account of the fact that some of those people are moving. Say, explain more about what this notion of, of development of place or development of people. Well, development of place is a useful, uh, useful notion. It's not useless, but it has strong limitations, and those are made incredibly clear to me by an example uh, of Lant Pritchett's. Uh, he pointed out this fact. Uh, the, the poverty line in Ghana, translated into U.S. dollars at U.S. prices, is about $3 a day. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the United States, for a single adult, I looked it up yesterday, it's over $30 a day. Now, the thought exercise is this. Take a Ghanaian mm -hmm. who's earning $8 a day, moves to the United States and makes $24 a day. Uh, you have taken away from Ghana somebody who was above the poverty line, meaning that the poverty rate in Ghana went up. You've placed a person into the United States who is below the United States poverty line, meaning that the poverty rate in the United States has gone up. All that happened in the scenario is that one person's income tripled and poverty in the world has increased everywhere. That, that's remarkable. That, that shows that the, these, these, the, any uh, indicator of development or poverty reduction based exclusively on place has limits when there is a world system in which people are participating. Traditionally, that's been very small, but more and more people are moving. Right now, 3% of the world lives outside the country of birth, and that's only going to increase. So what role... Uh in the past and in the future has movement of people played in the development process? So I mean, there's both the question of people moving from the countryside to the city, kind of internal migration. Tremendous, yeah. And then there's also people moving abroad, either temporarily or permanently. And to what extent, when we talk about development, you know, we often are talking about building infrastructure or improving health and education. Um, is, is, in fact, movement of people rather than development of place 
uh, how big a part of the development process is that? Well, it's gigantic. Just to talk about my own country, the U.S., it used to be a primarily agra agrarian economy. Now a tiny fraction of the, of the economy it comes from agriculture, a tiny fraction of the population works in agriculture. That arose through migration. Migration was part and parcel of that structural transformation, which was an inherent part of our economic development. Movement is not, movement is a, movement constitutes a portion of that process. It's not something that it's meaningful to say, uh, you know, how, how, to what degree does blood uh, uh, influence the body? Well, blood is part of the system. Uh, Thomas Edison was not inventing things out on a remote farm. Uh, the, the concentration of people in, uh, in, in places at the domestic level is something we can intuitively sense. The same thing happens at the international level. So you asked me, what is the contribution? For a few places we've studied, uh, Lane Pritchett and I have another paper in which we ask the question, for a few countries, uh, what portion of poverty reduction that ever occurred uh, for people from some place, some places happened in those right. places. And, and let me just give you the example of Haiti. For Haiti, uh, Lance and I set a, a poverty line that we think is much more reasonable, uh, at, which is uh, $10 a day at US prices. That's not Haiti's poverty line, but since that's a third of the US line of destitution, uh, $10 a day at Washington DC would certainly be, uh, I would consider myself beyond destitute. Uh, th if that's the poverty line and you ask the question, how many uh, Haitians, uh, people born in Haiti, ever got above that line uh, in the United States compared to those who did it in Haiti, uh, the answer is that 82% of those people who emerged from poverty by that definition did it outside Haiti. So to, to when people say, well, what could migration do for poverty reduction for Haitians? Migration has been poverty reduction for the vast majority of Haitians who have done it. So that w w it, it's, it's uh, uh, to me, the question is not, does it contribute? The, the, the question is how to make it contribute even more. So uh, there'll be lots of people listening who want to argue about what's the impact on, uh, on Haiti of people leaving and earning more money, sure. or people who want to talk about the impact on the United States. We're going to come to those. But I want to... Um, I just want to explore one point about this idea that people moving um, is is the development process in in part because, as you say, you know whether whether it's internal migration or external migration, what they're experiencing is a huge increase in their income, and that means that they're able to access health and education and other good things for them and their family. Mm -hmm. And and um, traditionally, well, I say traditionally, recently we've said that development is is. Uh, the fact of more people having to act, uh, having access to to a more of a range of these kinds of uh, not only of higher income but of more of these different uh, kinds of services. Uh, Martia Sen has this idea of um, of development as being the the capability of accessing uh, and making choices about these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I recently wrote a, a blog post actually saying that that doesn't fit with most people's idea of development. Right? Yes. It, it isn't simply that people have higher incomes, it's that something about the system has changed that that sustains those that better quality of life for those people. It is, yes. you know, if we just give aid to people, if we give them you know, food, then in one sense their quality of life is better because now they have food. But we wouldn't call that development yes. because the system hasn't changed. They, 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 there's no permanent change in the ability of the system to give them those things. So when you say that you know, Haitian, the majority of people who've got higher incomes from Haiti have done so by leaving Haiti. 
and moving to the United States and having higher incomes there. That isn't development, right? I mean, that's good for them, and there are all kinds of good things about that. But that isn't the same thing as development of Haiti. That's, that's just a welfare increase for a bunch of people from Haiti. It's not development of Haiti, the, the place that is half of Hispaniola Island, but it is absolutely development. And I, I agree completely with you that development is not just cash in the hand. I can walk into DuPont Circle outside our office and give cash to a panhandler, and, and he can do stuff with that, and that is not development uh, to me or probably to most people listening. Panhandler is a beggar for those people. Who ah, thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, and... I mean, to say that the human body is a system is not to negate the fact that the lung is also a system and the kidney is also a system. I mean, yes, Haiti, the place, is a system. There is also an international labor market, and people from Haiti uh, have participated in that market, both by moving across the island to Dominican Republic and off the island for centuries, and they'll continue to do so. And uh, the expansion of that system is the unfolding of a system to help people uh, rec realize their capabilities and, and therefore constitutes development for, uh, uh, in the broader sense. Okay, okay, got it. Um, you're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, and my guest, Michael Clemens. We've talked so far about the effect of migration on people, and after the break, we're going to start looking at some of the criticisms of migration, uh, which tend to focus on the impact of migration both on the places that people leave and on the uh, the impact on the places that they move to if you like development drums you should also consider listening to the global prosperity Wantcast, a shorter snappier podcast hosted by our colleague lawrence mcdonald you can find both development drums and the global prosperity Wantcast on itunes or at the center for global development website Michael, people who oppose migration, I think, on the whole, don't dispute that migration is good for the migrants, right? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that if people are putting themselves at the kind of risk that they do to, to move from one country to another, um, that uh, they must think that it's strongly in their interest to, to do so, and as you've said, the evidence shows that they're right about that. They, they get a huge improvement in their incomes and their standard of living. Um, but there are a lot of people who are opposed to migration on the grounds that even so, it is bad for the country that people move to. And let's start with jobs, because that's the most, that's, that's the thing that people talk about most. Um, and it, it kind of stands to reason, doesn't it, that if a Ghanaian moves from Ghana to London and gets a job as a hospital porter, that that's, um, that is one fewer job for somebody from London, somebody born in London, to do. And so there must be one more person unemployed in the United Kingdom because this Ghanaian has moved to take that job as a hospital porter. So what's wrong, what's wrong with that? So I want to start with the long term because this is something about which there could not be, to me, any intelligent controversy. In the long term, it's very, very clear that immigrants create jobs. People entering the labor force create jobs. There's no way... Uh, as Ben Powell of Texas Tech has pointed out, there's no way that so many women could enter the labor force after World War II uh, and not cause massive unemployment if the entry of people into a labor force does not also create employment. Entry into the labor force creates new consumers. It, it raises the return to investment in new businesses through all sorts of channels that are not abstract and theoretical, but very real, and we've seen them for generations. Uh, it, people entering the labor force in the long term 
create employment one for one. So, 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 let's, so, let's so we're talking about the short term. Let's here. just let's just pause on the long term point just yes, to make yes. sure that that's that's nailed down. So in a sense, what you're saying is that um, w as the supply of labour increases, and your example was women who previously hadn't been part of the workforce becoming part of the workforce. Yes. So um, that creates more demand in the economy, in some way that eventually reaches an equilibrium. So that yes, you've got more supply of people, but you've also got more people consuming and, and doing things in the economy that uh, and that creates about as much employment as the extra people by raising investment by fostering technological change by, by creating new consumers all kinds of things that enrich an economy right and if that weren't true then as our population has grown from you know some small number a hundred years ago to some bigger number today all those extra people in our economy would be unemployed and they're evidently not well let's talk precisely the US in 1905 had population 75 million unemployment was 5% in 1905. Fast forward to 2005, the population was 300 million, four times increase, unemployment was 5%. So Every single immigrant who came in generated exactly one job, full stop. That's not quite, if 5% of 300 million is a bigger number than 5% of 75 million. So there are more people unemployed now than- I, I mean in proportional terms, yes. I, I, it's, right. in, it's imprecise to say one for one jobs. I mean in, in proportional terms, right. the, 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 so both of those economies were at full employment. Right, in the set, right. Okay, so in the long run, it does, see, it does seem hard to sustain the view that as a population expands, all that expansion takes the form of higher unemployment. That Definitely. As the population expands, the economy expands, and other things being equal, unemployment is going to be about the same before and after. I, in the, in long the long run. In, in the long run. Okay, yes. so now you wanted to talk about the short run, so let's do that. Yes, so, uh, so we're, we're only talking about the short run, and... Uh, Whenever I speak to people who, uh, for whom their primary concern about immigration right now is employment, my first question is, how did you feel five years ago? At least in the United States in 2007, the economy was at full employment. It was below 5%. Uh, since records have been kept in 1870, uh, there has never been lower unemployment in the United States in any boom time. Uh, and there are certainly people whose uh, uh, attitudes towards immigration are flexible in that sense. Most of the people I speak to uh, would then shift to some other reason right. that in 2007 they okay. opposed it. But that's a debating point, right? I mean, let's let's be let's yes, yes, but let's be clear about what we're actually talking right. about. And often right. the conversation which starts about unemployment is not really about that. Right, right. No, but but let let's actually understand what the economics of the impact on unemployment is in the short run. Certainly. Because we'll come on to some of the other reasons why people might be hostile to immigration. But let's just understand whether there is an impact on jobs. Certainly. So this, this is an area of active research right now. I don't think anybody has settled it. Uh, the, the most influential study that exists is by David Card of the University of California at Berkeley. He studied a, an uh, astonishing natural experiment, which was that uh, in 1980, there was a one-off agreement between uh, U.S. President Jimmy Carter and Fidel Castro to admit many people who wanted to leave Cuba uh, from, uh, they departed from Mariel Bay in Cuba, so they're called the Marielitos, it's called the Mariel Boat Lift, and allow them to uh, arrive almost exclusively in uh, urban Miami. Uh, most of them stayed. It, in, over the course of three months, it was the arrival of over 100,000 people permanently. Uh, more came, but that's, that's the number who stayed in the Miami area a 7% increase in the labor force of Miami 
uh, in three months. So gigantic. That, that's about the, the proportional size of the U.S. economy that is unauthorized immigrants right now. Uh, and what David Carr did was track what happened to unemployment, what happened to wages, what happened to unemployment and wages of blacks, what happened to unemployment and wages of uh, other Cubans. And the answer, the astonishing answer that he found by comparing Miami to other urban areas like Atlanta that had not experienced this influx was that nothing happened. And it's, an, it's astonishing. And even the economists, in the short run? Even in the short run. I'm talking about immediately. I'm talking about that summer of 1980. But when they arrived, they were, un they were unemployed, right? Precisely. So on day one, they were unemployed. Well, on day two, they must still have been unemployed, right? I mean, how quickly would they have got jobs? And were they not displacing people in the local population? They, they mu I, it, in the, at, at a microscopic level, certainly, if somebody is to be hired for a job and I take you instead of somebody else, then yes, there is displacement. But what, what, this, uh, what this study and other evidence like it is suggesting is that the economy is much, much more complex than that. Uh, some economists call it the lump of labor fallacy, that there's only one labor market. In fact, there's a, there's a rich web of interlocking labor markets, which are also relating to capital markets. Something about the arrival of those people uh, certainly caused more consumption in the Miami area. All of those people were not just workers, they were also consumers. They affected the profitability of investing in new businesses, maybe many of them small businesses. Uh, I, uh, not long ago I ate in a restaurant which was founded shortly after arrival by one of them. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question, and economists are debating it to this day, but the fact is not in dispute. And it, it suggests that the, the, even in the short run, the labor markets we deal with are just much more complex. In, uh, Europeans have seen the huge influx of, by some estimates, 600,000 Poles mm -hmm. uh, after Britain opened to them in 2004. And economists like Christian Dussman, Ian Preston, and others have, uh, have looked uh, intently for any displacement I'm talking about any unemployment effect, any wage effect of that gigantic inflow of people in a very short time, and it's just not there. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating area. It's a frontier area of research. It's certainly not at all clear that they displaced even a single worker at the destination. And yet I wonder if this is a case where economists are guilty of um, depersonalizing people into numbers, because hmm. it may be that... Um, for example, you have an influx of Poles who have a series of skills, say, as plumbers, is the famous hmm. story in Europe. And if you were a British plumber, you might find that you are now unemployed, but that there are more jobs for shop workers selling goods to the Polish immigrants. So from an economist kind of impersonal point of view, it's a wash, right? You've got one, f you've got one fewer employed British person who was a plumber, but you've got one more employed British person who is now a shop worker. But they're different people. If you're the plumber who got displaced from that, and you're now unemployed and you didn't used to be, you don't think that's a wash, right? You think that's a disaster, and it is a disaster for you. So when you say there's no effect, do you mean there's no effect, but underneath the surface there might be some personal triumphs for some people who get jobs and didn't used to have them and some personal catastrophes for other people who used to have a job and now they don't but overall it's a, it, you know to us it's a wash because we don't see those individual things absolutely i mean we we started out just talking about what is the effect on the unemployment rate and and certainly the effects are much richer and there can't be no effects certainly there are going to be all kinds of complex effects i would dispute that they are always uh, something that you could define as disaster uh, for example if uh, an influx of low-skill immigrants uh, depresses the low-skill wage. 
that is what an economist would say is the return to dropping out of high school. And that causes, as is quite reasonable to believe, people to stay in high school and complete high school, maybe even continue to college. That has certainly changed the person's life. It certainly had an effect on them that has made make them do something they otherwise wouldn't have done, but I'm not sure it's a disaster. They might find right. that it's something that pays off quite well in the long term, as changing sectors right. might do for a plumber. So the, sto the story there is that if you have a, a, an influx of, of low-paid um, workers that, and you're, you know, you're somebody born, born and bred in London and you're thinking about leaving school, you're going to think, well, if I leave school without qualifications, I'm going to be competing in this very badly paid part of the labor market with a lot of competition. I would rather get my qualifications in school and then I can, I can compete for jobs above where these low-skilled workers are working. And so what you end up with is, is that the local-born citizens actually maintain a higher level of skills and, and end up with higher incomes than they would have done without the immigration. Is that, is that your Certainly example? this has happened to some degree. And I, I just, I don't mean to say that's the only effect. And certainly there's displacement and certainly there's stress from, uh, from any sort of change. I, I just, uh, I, I want to just put on the table that not all such change is disastrous. Right. I, I want to come back to some of these um, costs of change points in a mm. second. But let's look at some of the other costs because you've, I think very convincingly said that um, the, the impact on jobs in the long run uh, is ev self-evidently zero, and in the short run, perhaps more surprisingly, also looks like it's zero. Um, but a lot of people who are worried about immigration are either not worried about jobs or willing to put aside their concern about jobs, but they have another set of worries about, and these, these are much harder to describe, and people are actually, interestingly, are quite nervous of describing them for fear of sounding as if they are um, uh, saying something that people would interpret as racist. But people are worried, you know, my kid is going to a school, they say, and now most of the kids in her class don't speak English as their first language. And so the whole class is moving more slowly and my kid's not getting the same kind of education she was getting. Or my local services are, are stretched. You know, there's n the waiting list at the hospitals are going up. Um, you know the the school the classes are too full at my school. Um, I, I'm in the housing queue for social housing and I can't get it. The people feel as if there's some pressure on public services from having a high level of immigration, and people also worry about cultural homogeneity. They worry that you know as uh, particularly if you have large groups of immigrants um, coming in that something about the quality of life for people in the in the country of Iraq. You know, I think a lot of people would say there are huge benefits to this, we like diversity, we like these communities, you know, all those things. But nonetheless they feel like they're losing something too, that there's pressure on not just on public space and public amenities, but also on, on some kind of cultural asset that they feel is threatened by that. As economists I think it's quite hard for us to have a lot to say about that. But but how, you know how seriously should we take those concerns? So I want to start with the the concerns of, of community and cultural homogeneity. Uh, when I look at the 1,500 people who died in the Mediterranean last year, according to the estimates of UNHCR, when I look at the 400 or 500 dead bodies that the U.S. Border Patrol collects on the U.S.-Mexico border every year, I, I don't mean that these things have simple answers, but if I... Uh, if I'm doing that to protect my community, it might be time to reevaluate my community. I, I'm not, I, I should think carefully about what aspects of my life comfort uh, are worth that right. cost. So, 
So interestingly, mo even the people who complain vociferously about this probably wouldn't mount a machine gun at a, at a fence and, and shoot people <laughs> trying to come into their community. And yet somehow through our institutions, we're implicitly doing that by, put it, by forcing people into endangering their lives trying to be illegal. I, I'm not suggesting for a minute that those people are murderers, but it is if I, if I want to consider the benefits of a system for my uh, uh, cultural comfort and as I walk around my day-to-day -day life, I need to consider also the costs of that system. It's, it's right. ethically complex. I don't mean to suggest it by any means that somebody right. who, who is migration restrictionist is therefore a murderer. It is nevertheless a clear cost of the system. Uh, but that's a point about saying, yes, there may, people may be worried about the cultural impact, but um, there are, you know, they also need to take care to, to think about the effects on the migrants of having that concern. But nonetheless, that isn't an argument against them having that concern, right? I, I think there are legitimate concerns. I, I, I'm not lucky enough to have kids yet, but if I, if my children were in school and I saw something happening to them that I felt was beyond my control, I'd have concerns about it, and I think those are perfectly legitimate. Uh, the the notion that cultural purity is what's best for children is something that uh, I mean, as as you correctly note, I'm an economist. I don't have any expertise on this. I do note that places that are vibrant with many languages, uh, such as Hong Kong or Montreal, are among the most delightful, desirable places to live on Earth. Uh, I do note that uh, if I were to walk around London with a copy of Beowulf and ask people to read it, essentially everyone would tell me that they can't read it. Right. And the reason they can't read it is because it was written in the ninth century before English was hopelessly corrupted by foreign influence. And that's where we get Chaucer and that's where we get Shakespeare. So I, I, I think it's safe to say Shakespeare has enriched children's lives and I think myopic arguments that purity of some kind is what's best for children is, uh, need to be looked at very carefully. Now uh, about the 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 influence of uh, about the burden on public services. Right. This is something that's been of great concern and I think legitimate concern. Also extensively studied. This is not something that's hypothetical. Uh, many British economists have looked carefully at the use of uh, uh, public services in, in Britain by the polls uh, aforementioned. And it's much, much lower than the rate at which others use them. The same thing has been found in, uh, in the United States. Uh, Ronald Lee, a demographer among others, has studied uh, how much at the federal level migrants uh, put in through various taxes uh, that they pay, and they do pay very large numbers of taxes, such as sales taxes, property taxes, and sometimes unrequited social security taxes, and how much they take out. And his conclusion is that for the migrant, it's usually a wash, and for their children, it's, it's uh, robustly positive. So saying it's a wash means that they, they come to the UK or the US, they pay taxes, they receive public services, and roughly speaking, the state is breaking even on that transaction. Overall, they are paying their own way. And certainly right. there are exceptions to that, just as there are exceptions of uh, many Americans who don't right. pay their way in, pu in, in public service terms. But on, on average, migrants, first genera the first generation pays its way, and the second generation More is, than a, does so. is yes. a net contributor yes. to the state. Okay. In the United States. I, I haven't seen that calculation for Britain. Um, so I think in both the case on the jobs and in the case on the impact on public services, and perhaps also in the case of, of kind of culture and diversity and those kinds of issues, um, it feels to me like we have an adjustment problem, 
right? It feels to me like, and often economists think in comparative statics, right? This equal, you know, the next equilibrium is looking better than this equilibrium, so we should move there. But we don't take sufficient account of the transitional costs and impacts of people of getting from yes from our from this equilibrium which is not that great to to the next equilibrium which is even which is much better yes and i mean take the example of public services right i mean eventually these people these people are paying taxes and that should mean that there are more public services available for people but but it takes time for us to do that once they have to pay enough taxes for us then to build more schools train more teachers um, uh, you know, improve public transport and so on. So although they are providing the money that would enable us to, pub to improve public services, public services don't in fact improve that quickly. Yes. And, you know, you can have a group of uh, immigrants moving to uh, a particular part of, uh, of London, say, you know, quite quickly. And I know that Tesco's, the, the retailer, um, has a way of tracking their sales at the cash register. So they can normally spot where a group of migrants has arrived within hmm. two weeks. Hmm. They can say, right, there's a Polish community who's moved in here. And on the shelves, you'll get a special area of Tesco's that's got you know, sauerkraut and dill pickles and things for the Polish community that's just arrived there. I want to get that data. I'll be emailing Tesco this afternoon. No, well, I mean, they, they can do that. Now, the trouble is that, you know, um, Westminster Council doesn't do the same, does, isn't as smart as Tesco's mm. in saying, right, we've got this problem. You know, they will often have been working on data for the, num for the cohort of children they're expecting to put through primary school, for example, which they got five years ago from the birth data. And they know there'll be some inward and some outward migration, and they'll know what the average for that is. But they won't be expecting this big influx, and they won't be able to respond as quickly yes. to that. This seems to me to, to really underlie a lot of people's concerns about migration, the, the inability of these important institutions to adapt when this migration happens. Yes, and I, I think this is absolutely critical. I, I've heard it called the mayonnaise problem. The mayonnaise problem. Yeah, in, in that you have to mix oil and eggs in just the right way to get mayonnaise, and you can't do it too fast. Uh, it, it, I don't mean to to minimize problems of this kind. And yes, I am talking in, in uh, comparative static terms, as you put it. There, there's a transition that needs to happen. This has been the subject of almost none of the research uh, that uh, that economists have done on on immigration. Remarkably, it's all about uh, these other kinds of questions that we've been talking about till now. Certainly, there's uh, uh, a, a a rate which is too much. Certainly, there's a disorganized way for it to happen. If we're talking about something that unquestionably has benefits in the long term, the question for us as this generation is how to make sure that those benefits come about. That's part of being responsible to the next generation, which will, which will reap them, and to, to make sure that it comes about in a way that protects human rights to the extent possible, that, uh, that avoids civil conflict, all of these things. But really, it's about managing a transition to a, a world in which uh, the place you are doesn't determine 59% of your life prospects, but a, a, a place that, that rewards more of who you are. One last point on this impact on uh, and, and what it is that we can do about making it possible for there to be more migration and, and reducing these negative transitional effects. So as you say, we can make it possible. Yes. Do you think there's a tension in the end between having a European-style welfare state that provides unemployment benefit for the unemployed, housing for people who can't afford their own housing, and so on, and having large quantities of migration. I mean, is, this, is there just a fundamental incompatibility? Not at all. 
why not? I mean, it sounds, for a lot of people, it sounds like we have a choice. We can either have lots of immigration or we can have a welfare system, but you can't have both. Not at all. We, we have, there must be, what's, there clearly must be is a system to prevent free riding. That is, it, there must be some system to make sure that if you're taking lots of resources out, you've put in some resources. And uh, that could be more or less, depending on uh, redistributional concerns. But uh, some such mechanism is, uh, is, uh, is required. Now, should that mechanism be a fence? Or should that mechanism be something else? Well, traditionally, uh, we have allocated public services like that, depending on where you are. And that works pretty well in a world where not many people change where they are. Right. Now we're in a different world where it's vastly easier to change where you are. People are, are changing where they are to a huge extent, and there needs to be a different system. Uh, such systems are already in place. So you can't just show up in the United States and get Social Security. You need to prove that you have paid into the system for 40 quarters. That is a minimum of 10 years, or, or even longer if you haven't worked all of the time before you can take one dollar out of that system. And that's right, that's the way it should be. It Social shouldn't Security, be that can, I should just yes. explain for European listeners, is what we would call state pensions, not what we would call Social Security, which is a, a system of income support for people who are poor. Ah, thank you. So, yes. uh, so you can't get this a This is US, old age pension. This is old age pension. You can't get unless you've paid in for 10 years. Yes, and, and that's appropriate. That, that's a mechanism to prevent free riding, and it's not a fence, it's another mechanism. So, so to say that there's an incompatibility is to say that there's an incompatibility between a system where rights are based on place right. and free movement, and certainly that's true. That would lead to free riding, and that's something that people would find unjust, but there are many alternatives to that. So that we need to think about how to adapt the welfare system to not rely on there being a fence, but to rely on some other mechanism for, for ensuring fairness. Well said. Good, okay. Um, this is Development Drums with my guest Michael Clemens. After the break, we're going to be talking about uh, the brain drain, the idea that migration has a negative impact on the country from which people leave. If you'd like to find out more about what we do at the Centre for Global Development in Europe, visit our webpage on the CGD website. You can also find more development podcasts, events videos and whiteboard videos on CGD's multimedia page. Michael, before the break we were talking about the effects of migration first on the people themselves and then on the countries to which they migrate. Let's turn our attention now to the effects of migration on the countries from which people come. And I'd like to start with this idea of a brain drain. Um, so people, I don't know if this is true, but people say there are more Ghanaian doctors practicing in London or in New York than there are practicing in Ghana. And um, whether or not that's true, it certainly seems right to say that there's something wrong with a world in which a Ghanaian, a smart Ghanaian grows up in Ghana, gets trained as a doctor, and then spends his or her life solving the medical problems of people like you and me, instead of serving a medical system in Ghana where there is desperate need and a desperate shortage of doctors. So evidently, it doesn't make sense for um, countries like ours to have Ghanaian doctors working in our health systems because of the brain drain. Now you've done some work on this, uh, specifically on this question of, of medical professionals. Tell, tell us what you found and what your conclusions were. So you started out saying that uh, we're talking about the effects of migration. So I want to be very clear. Migration is the choice of where to live. So if you're talking about uh, a, a brain drain that means nefarious effects on the place you come from because of your choice of where to live, 
I, I don't accept that. I don't accept that there's, there's any such thing. I, I believe that there could be nefarious effects of the reasons that people leave. Uh, why is somebody leaving Ghana? Why are they not paying for their own training? Uh, these questions have uh, important answers that we need to look at. If we define the problem as uh, people are choosing where to live and that is uh, in, in the extreme example that people talk about medical brain drain that is killing children because people are choosing where to live, that is because they're migrating and those are synonymous, uh, that's something I can't possibly accept. Right. Okay, so there's a framing point you're making yes. here, which is that it isn't the migration that's causing the problem, it's the, it's the reasons why people are leaving that are causing the problem. Yes, and, okay. and, and this is not just semantics. Right. So. But I want, I want to get into the question of, is it true that when people leave, that causes harm to the people from which they leave? The their country their movement is not the cause of it. No, no. And, and, and I want to be very okay. clear about this. So if uh, here in Washington, a very poor neighborhood is Anacostia, and nobody... Nobody, no right-minded person would say to themselves, uh, the poverty of Anacostia is due to the uh, choice of bright young people from Anacostia to live somewhere else, because then the clear policy prescription is take away that choice. The right. choice is the problem, and migration is a choice. That's all that it is. It is based on reasons, and if you were to foster development in the neighborhood of Anacostia, all that you would do would say, uh, right. if we want bright young people living there, let's give them a reason to stay. We would right. never say their departure is the problem because then we right. focus on but, the departure. But, but we, we, we do that for poor countries. What I want to get into is, is it harmful, whether or not we say it's the cause, is it harmful for Anacostia or is it harmful for Ghana that people leave? The reasons why they're leaving are harmful. The, the, the choice itself is absolutely not harmful. The choice itself, dependent on the reasons, is something that you would make, that I would make, and that no reasonable person, I think, could define as something that is harmful in and of itself. That's what migration is, a decision. Okay, so take, for example, the British government's policy of not actively recruiting medical professionals to the National Health Service from developing countries with shortages of medical staff. Yes. Okay. The, uh, the purpose of that policy, which I'm sure you're going to tell me doesn't actually work, but uh, the purpose of that policy is to, is to do what we can to reduce our contribution to medical professionals leaving, say, Ghana to go and work somewhere else. Is it true that it would be better for Ghana for there to be, for more of its doctors to choose to stay in Ghana and work there than for those doctors to go and work in New York. So that policy is well intended. I have respect for the people who put it in place, but uh, I think it should be wiped off the map. Uh, it is, uh, even if it were effective, uh, it, even if it did work, it would be ineffective at its goal. Second, it does not work. And, and third, it, I, I consider it to be profoundly unethical. Okay, so let's take those three in turn, right? Yes. It, okay, so uh, the second one was it doesn't work. The first is... So trapping doctors in Ghana right. does not do one thing to change the reason why those people are leaving Ghana. And this is an example, this is a perfect example of the kind of policy you arrive at when you focus on people's decisions as the problem rather than the making of those decisions. Mm -hmm. Why are they choosing to okay. leave? Uh, second of all, it did not work. Okay, uh, so let's stop on the first please. of those. Um, so, in what sense does it? In what sense does it not work? That um, we've cho we so we can't address necessarily the weaknesses in the Ghanaian health system that might leave a doctor to say, you know what, I I want to really 
help people and I can't do that in my own medical system I can't get access to the drugs I don't have the operating theaters I don't have the colleagues I don't have the community that enables me to do that we so could imagine to... things that would do that but the last thing would be to stop a, the Ghanaian doctor at in the airport with, with a guy with a gun saying you can't leave there's certainly many things that would change that decision that would change the Ghanaian health system okay. trapping people in a space uh, is is what jailers do that is not one of those things Okay, but you're making an ethical point. I want to get to the practical point of if if we had some ethical way of make of making them stay, if we could bribe them to stay, say, oh, or give them a reason to stay. That's a perfectly ethical way, way to right. make them stay. And then Ghana would be better off, right? Absolutely, because those doctors would be there practicing in absolutely. Ghana rather than in New York. Absolutely. Okay. The question is the sort of whether migration is the problem, and I absolutely reject that it is the problem that that has any meaningful focus. Okay, I thought you were going to say something else here, so you must tell me if I've got this completely wrong. In which case, I'll take this section out of the podcast. <laughs> um, I thought you were going to say that people having the opportunity to leave Ghana, having trained as a doctor or as a nurse, um, changed the equilibrium in Ghana, that, that more people would want to become doctors and nurses in Ghana if it was the kind of profession where some of those people would have an opportunity to travel abroad and earn incomes abroad. And the net effect um, of medical professionals leaving developing countries is that there's more supply of medical professionals in those countries. I, th I thought that was what your research showed. That, that can happen, but it can only happen when the education system has a certain flexibility. So okay. it has clearly happened in the Philippines. I, I believe it's also happened in South Africa, and both of those I can document. Uh, in the Philippines, it's the clearest of all. The Philippines is the top origin country for, uh, let's talk about nurses, registered nurses on earth, tens of thousands of leaving, uh, leaving a year. The large majority of Philippine-trained registered nurses live elsewhere. Uh, most of the foreign-born nurses in the United States are Filipinas. Uh, huge, huge flow out. And how many registered nurses are there in the Philippines? Uh, more per capita than Great Britain. Right. And this is a, a, a lower middle-income country. We're talking the, the, the income per capita of Peru. And they have more nurses in the Philippines in that context than Great Britain does, than Italy does per person. How did that happen? It's because there is a huge uh, private nursing education sector that responded in just the way that you outlined to that uh, incentive. The migration of nurses abroad to better earning opportunities means, in economic terms, higher return to human capital, and people respond to that incentive. They have massively responded to that incentive in the, in the Philippines to such a degree that immigration has more than compensated more than one for one replace the people who, who, who have gone. But that can only happen when uh, there is not, when there are not artificial barriers to the response of the education system. Right. And in, in, uh, in, in Ghana right now, conditions are probably not propitious for that. But that, that is an example of what we should seek to build rather than building fences. Right, so we would be better off allowing Ghanaian doctors or nurses to leave Ghana, but help have a better medical training system so that as as the status of those uh, of that profession rises because people have these external opportunities so more people come into the profession and you end up as in the case of the philippines with actually a very high level of professionalized uh, medical service because you have a training system that's partly funded uh, by these people who are going abroad for example and by uh, the countries um, who are benefiting from that training that, that's precisely where to fund it. Nurses and doctors leaving Africa for other places can uh, can earn a 500%, 1,000%, 2,000% more. As I mentioned before, that's the biggest arbitrage opportunity on earth. 
there, there'd be absolutely no problem if the financial mechanism existed for them to pay for their educations. So when people talk about the, the financial brain drain, they're often talking about a result of not just movement, but many things, including current educational finance systems, and those can be changed. They don't require fences to maintain them. Right. So the answer is there could be a brain drain if the um, systems from which people leave are insufficiently flexible to be able both to respond to the increased throughput that's needed and to be able to capture some part of the benefit of people leaving to finance those systems. If you could, if you could find some way of fixing some of that, then you would fix the brain drain. And that's a better way to fix the brain drain than having a man at a border with a gun saying you can't leave. Dramatically better. It's much more ethical, uh, in, in my opinion. I don't see why anybody uh, born in Malawi should have uh, uh, somebody standing at the border telling them that they uh, must serve uh, in the Malawian public service because the person at the border with the gun has decided that that's the best thing. Uh, not one of us, I, I believe, honestly listening to this podcast would be willing to uh, to say to volunteer to be that person to say I believe that somebody in a ministry who has decided where I need to live and work should have the right to coerce me to do it even when I have demonstrated that I would rather do something else. So the summary on the negative side of the ledger for developing countries is um, there are some situations where people leaving is is beneficial. The Philippines is a good example. Uh, where the system is sufficiently flexible to respond, um, you end up with more people coming into those professions and so on. But the, there may be cases, there are cases, where um, uh, there is a negative effect, and the correct solution to that is not to stop the brain drain, but to enable the system to respond in that more positive way. Well, what? It's, it's all a question of what we consider to be people's rights, and that's simply a decision. That's not an empirical right. fact about the world. If you believe that people, for example, leaving a poor neighborhood like Anacostia have the right to move, then it's the environment that shapes the, the impact of that thing. If you don't, then you focus on the movement. And what the, what the National Health Service ban on recruitment from developing countries does is focus attention entirely on the movement. And we don't even talk about all of these other things, like how could we get more creative with education finance in a way to make movement, which is definitely going to happen anyway, into a win-win, rather than focus on stanching the movement. On the positive side of the ledger, let's talk about remittances. And in a way that I imagine annoys you as it does me, or for a lot of people working in development, remittances are identified as the big benefit of migration. And I imagine that's annoying because you like to focus rightly on the impact of the mi on the migrants themselves. That's good imagination. Uh, right. Uh, I, I guessed you'd do that. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, people are right, aren't they, to say that remittances are an important benefit for developing countries. I mean, the, the numbers now are, uh, are quite large. Yes. To, uh, worldwide remittance flows are heading towards $400 billion a year. $400 or billion dollars a year. Quadruple aid flows. Yeah, nearly quadruple yes. aid flows. Right. Yes. So, and is that good for development? I, I've, I was recently in Morocco and I saw these huge, rather garish houses going up and I asked people, well, who's paying for these things? And the answer was, Moroccans working abroad, I think, in, uh, in southern Europe, uh, and they were building their retirement homes back in Morocco. Now, it doesn't seem to me that a huge garish home in Morocco is going to have a big benefit for, I mean, it'll employ some people in the building trade, but it's not doesn't feel like it's investment in the infrastructure of Morocco that's going to improve that country's systemic ability to uh, make a better quality of life for its people. 
Sure. So you're absolutely right that I do try to de-emphasize remittances in my own work simply because there is already a lot of attention on them. But remittances are very important. They are a mostly an intra-household transfer, that is, from one family member to another. Uh, that is something that goes on all over developing countries. This is just something that happens to cross a border. But a a a husband working and giving money to his wife who is raising children uh, in San Salvador is not so doing something any different than if the husband is in Texas sending money across the border. Mm-hmm. That's just uh, in, in the case of remittances, it happens to be a lot of money. Now, uh, what they're doing with it, well, I mean, the garishness of somebody's spending decisions, I, I, uh, people have different opinions about it. I don't think it's any of my business. If people in El Salvador get to make ha- have greater freedom about the decisions of what to do with their lives, including buying hideous clothes or listening to stupid music or building garish homes, that's entirely their business, and they probably consider most of my choices uh, worse. Uh, now, but but is there a development benefit? Is there? Do the I mean? Is, yes. the, the, is this just a more consumption of of things that are, don't have much development? So there, there's something which I think is not uh, often, which needs to be a greater part of this discussion, which is that consumption causes investment. Uh, full stop. Now, people often say, well, remittances, you know, remittances sent to Haiti. Uh, are mostly consumed. Uh, Manuel Orozco of the Inter-American Dialogue has survey evidence on what people in Haiti do with remittances, and it's mostly food, uh, education, uh, health care. They are buying goods and services uh, produced in Haiti. They're mostly not buying flat-screen TVs from Korea. They're buying goods and services produced in Haiti. What happens when you buy a good and service produced in Haiti? Well, somebody provided that. A farm provided that. A business provided that. You are raising the profits of that Haitian farmer business. By definition, you are raising the return to investment in that farmer business, meaning you are causing investment right. by consuming. That's how an economy works. You don't need to. You don't need to to uh, uh, put it into a, a village cooperative that is raising a, 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 a barn of some kind. Although that's a perfectly good thing to do with it to foster investment. Right. There's a multiplier. Uh, uh, right. So with, if you're, if you're sending money to your sister and she's buying food, then that means that somebody else can raise the cooperative barn because then there's more demand for food from from that farm. That's what happens when money circulates. It's spent, and the person you give it to spends it, and the person you give it to spends it, and that builds the entire economy, and that causes investment. Consumption causes investment, always and everywhere in every economy, and and remittances stimulate consumption mostly. Always, uh, and therefore stimulate investment. I'm always struck that people who are hostile to foreign aid um, talk often about Dutch disease effects. This is the effect on the uh, exchange rate of, uh, on the real exchange rate of having foreign aid inflows, but they never talk about the Dutch disease effect of remittances. And yet it would seem to me to be exactly the same. That we, if we're concerned about the Dutch disease effect of aid, we ought to be exactly as concerned about the Dutch disease effect of remittances? C- certainly. Uh, but. I mean, to, to be to say that that negates the uh, benefit of remittances is tantamount to saying, well, when incomes, when disposable income rose in the industrial revolution, urban food prices also rose. Well, uh, certainly that's true. Right. But uh, the, the question is, what's the net effect? Right. And the net effect of remittances is certainly positive. That's exactly why I think the Dutch disease effect in foreign is not a valid criticism of foreign aid. Rather, uh, so I draw the conclusion that. For the same reason that we're in favour of remittances and their positive effects, we ought to be in favour. We ought not to take attention a to uh, of that 
criticism of Foreign Aid. There are lots of other reasons yes. for criticism. Well, it's a real phenomenon. It's just a, it, it, but it's it not doesn't a bad negate thing. N- not necessarily. It's, 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 it's Dutch, but it's not a disease. <laughs> anyway, um, on remittances, is there something that we in the, in the rich world should be doing, apart from accepting more migrants, um, to improve the way remittances flow? Should we be uh, trying to reduce their transactions costs? Should we be doing something to um, help governments um, in recipient countries um, tax them or securitize them or do something to benefit more from them? Or is this just fine as it is and we should, you know, the, the, the main policy conclusion is that it's yet another reason for thinking that migration is good? So th- this is something I'm not an expert in. Uh, as you pointed out, I, I haven't worked a lot on remittances. One thing that I can clearly see uh, that uh, from the time I started doing research on migration to now has just uh, revolutionarily changed across the whole world is the, the ease of sending money. So uh, the remarkable fact about today's Africa is that uh, the huge majority of people that you meet walking around incredibly poor places have a device in their pocket that's electronically connected to a, a real-time global network over which you can send money. Nothing of remotely of the kind was true 10 years ago. Uh, migration uh, has not changed. The ability of people to send remittances easily has changed. In one country, Kenya, where Safaricom created this uh, fantastic uh, money-sending system, M-Pesa. With the support of the British Department for International Development. Is that true? I didn't know. I I read recently that uh, more than four out of five Kenyan adults have used this system. So we're talking about everybody, even down to people with very little education are successfully using the system to send money. Uh, Some large fraction of the entire Kenyan money supply seems to now reside in M-Pesa credits. Uh, that means that with the knowledge, in, in five minutes, I could send most Kenyan adults any amount of money I wanted. That's, that's astonishing. But even if they're in the middle of the bush, uh, uh, something that never could have happened uh, just a few years ago. And, and where we get to the policy concern is that there appear to be barriers, policy barriers, to a, a similar expansion, to an expansion of similar systems in other countries. And, and uh, it, it, it could be, uh, and I think this differs in, in different countries, but it could be in, that in many of those cases, uh, incumbents in financial services, particularly banks, that are threatened by these things are, are regulating them out of existence. Right. And that, that, that's not the only reason why right. every African country doesn't have an M-Pesa, but it is an important reason. Uh, it's not just every African country. A, a, a Kenyan uh, friend uh, was visiting here in Washington, D.C. recently and said he couldn't get used to the fact that he couldn't pay for things here <laughs> and transfer money here with his mobile phone and he mm. got so used to it back home. Mm. Um, this is uh, Development Drums with my guest Michael Clements. After the break, we'll turn to the last section of our discussion, which is about uh, development policy and uh, migration. Do you have a topical guest you'd like to see on Development Drums? We're always open to suggestions, so please tell us yours by visiting our Facebook page. You can also find out who we have lined up for Development Drums and pose any questions you have for them there. Michael, you and I both work at the Centre for Global Development, where our goal is not only to do interesting uh, research and great research, but also to turn that research into practical policy ideas. And I'm take us back to the moment where you were sitting around thinking, 
what shall I do, what shall I work on, what shall I research into um, that's going, that I'm going to be able to turn into a practical policy idea. And you look down the list of possible topics and you thought migration, that's, that's the place where there's really you know, political space and that, that's, that's the place where I'm really going to have an effect on development by coming up with uh, policy proposals in my... What made you pick migration as something to work on for, for policy? Masochism. Right, you, you must be mad, right? I, I've been told again and again that no policy progress could be made, and, and yet recently I, I think we've demonstrated conclusively that that's not the case. And, and I, I want to tell the, the story of our work on Haiti as, an, as an, uh, what I hope could be an inspiring example to people thinking about this topic. Uh, I mentioned before that Lane Pritchett and I had studied the massive effects of poverty reduction uh, uh, for Haitians uh, of migration, leaving Haiti. And I happened to put a video about that research online the day before Haiti's cataclysmic earthquake of two and a half years ago, one of the deadliest earthquakes on Earth in the last millennium. And uh, a guy at the Washington Post saw this video, asked me to write an article about how labor mobility might contribute to the relief and recovery effort. I wrote him some carcass, and he read it and said, look, I, I need a specific proposal. What's the proposal? So I wrote, there needs to be some mechanism for people to move after natural disasters. You're looking at the cheapest and most effective uh, force for poverty reduction for Haitians, and it wasn't on the table as a part of the relief and recovery efforts. Uh, all of it was uh, aid-based in combination with a, a uh, rigid uh, naval blockade of the country. Um, Setting aside, uh, the, the, they, they did put a stay on deportations of people who managed to come here, but I'm, I'm saying not, not one Haitian was allowed to leave Haiti after this cataclysm because of uh, what had occurred there. And it struck me as ironic that uh, we had a complex system of uh, refugee and asylum law for people that would have accommodated uh, the departure of some limited number of people from Haiti if a minor conflict were going on there, if uh, even small numbers of people faced the threat of violent persecution, but nothing to accommodate the needs of somebody whose life had been destroyed, whose family had been wiped out uh, by something uh, equally their fault, resulting from a movement of the earth. Uh, equally not their fault, I should say. And uh, at that time, people told us, well, uh, that will never change, particularly with regard to Haiti. Uh, you've got an election coming up, uh, the economy is bad, and you're talking about uh, even any number, even any small number of uh, dark-skinned, very poor people moving to the United States is going to be uh, 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 political insanity. You who live in Washington should understand that nothing positive could happen uh, in that space. And to make a long story very short, we spent much of 2011 going around Washington and Florida talking to the elected representatives of people who uh, live in the places where a lot of Haitians uh, would go, uh, have, do go coming to the U.S. We talked to the, the Homeland Security, the State Department, uh, all around Congress, the National Association of Haitian American Elected Officials, the uh, Haiti Advocacy Working Group. Uh, put together a coalition and uh, uh, came to the Department of Homeland Security with a proposal, which was to uh, reverse a standing uh, ban on Haiti's participation in the largest temporary work visa to the U.S. called the H-2 visa. And in January, they did. 
Uh, and Fantastic. they did it in an election year. Fantastic. They did it with bipartisan support. We had Republicans and Democrats signing letters to Janet Napolitano saying this is a reasonable thing to do. Uh, and uh, and they did it. And it's something that's going to be, It's it was a change in migration policy for reasons of, of humanitarianism, development, poverty reduction, something that's very uncommon something that's, that, that uh, certainly didn't happen in propitious circumstances, but really happened uh, and, 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 and could happen to, uh, to a greater degree uh, 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 elsewhere. So, uh, I mean, first thing, congratulations on that. Thanks. That's a huge, uh, a huge achievement. It, it shows, I think, two things. One is that um, when we talk about policy change and migration, it, w this isn't an all or nothing. We're not, you know, you're not suggesting what we need is open borders, um, and that's the answer to development is just is just a removal of all restrictions on migration. Uh, that what you're saying is that there are specific policy measures that we can make, which may look small relative to migration policy, but actually are quite large relative to our approach to development. You know, compared to giving aid. This was a hugely valuable contribution uh, to the lives of an, a, a large number of people. And to the Haitian economy as well. I mean, uh, uh, the, the remarkable thing about a giant arbitrage opportunity, and in economic terms, that's what this kind of movement is, is that the movement doesn't need to be very large in order to have vast economic potential. So in the case of the Haitians we're talking about, uh, each one of them has a uh, so a, a Haitian in the agricultural sector doing low skill work can make about a thousand dollars a year. Uh, working on this visa, doing agricultural work in the U.S., they'll make about seventeen hundred dollars a month. Yeah. So we're talking about gigantic gains, uh, so much that if uh, say two thousand Haitians, a minuscule fraction of the Haitian labor force, a drop in the a, a minuscule drop in the bucket of the of the the U.S. economy. Uh, in a sector where labor is in shortage, acute shortage right now, uh, which is manual farm work, uh, would generate hundreds of millions of dollars over the space of a few years, going, f f first of all, unlike aid, going directly to uh, uh, Haitians and their families. Uh, uh, the large majority of that would be remitted. Uh, and, and second of all, rivaling in size the uh, entire U.S. aid package for reconstruction in Haiti post-earthquake, hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're, and we're costing us nothing, actually. Ben, not only that, but actually, unlike the aid package, which costs us, is a transfer from people in America, this is actually beneficial to people in America because they're generating economic Absolutely. activity. Manual farm work makes farms more productive. It generates jobs for Americans who are supervisors, equipment operators, etc. Those people all pay taxes. They pay into the fiscus. This is something which is uh, really win-win-win. So... I think one of the, the magic things that's going on here is, is to do with the numbers, that the gains from my, even quite small amounts of migration are so huge, and actually the, the, development, the development benefits are so huge that it looks like this is an area where there ought to be quite a lot of small you know, tweaks to migration policy possible in lots of different areas in ways that would not be politically um, very salient. You can't imagine that, that you know, 2,000 Haitians is going to be a, a cause for enormous uh, political campaigning. And yet with, with massive possible development benefits. Is it your view that, there are, that there's a huge landscape of such opportunities that you know, with, the, with the right research and focus on it, we could now identify and pick up? Is there, 
you know, are we close to some boundary of, of either what's feasible or when the, the effects of this accumulate so large that it becomes politically infeasible to do it? What's your sense of how, how, many, how many opportunities there are for this kind of thing? Absolutely. I, I, I wrote an article last year called Trillion Dollar Bills on the Sidewalk, uh, arguing that the, the, the potential gains are just vast, in numbering in the trillions of dollars a year. And when that kind of potential is lying around, uh, it, it's not automatic that there be institutions to realize it, but they, there's huge pressure for them to arise. What would be the next thing you would do, either in U.S. immigration policy or, say, a European immigration policy? What, you know, having achieved the this this uh, ex this change in the visa status for Haitians. What you know? What w are there a, a few things that are on your hit list of things that we could we should be tackling? So uh, another area uh, aside from uh, manual agricultural work, where it's very clear that there are uh, acute and growing, uh, not just short term but long term labor needs in many developed countries, the U.S. Uh, all over Europe, uh, Japan, is in healthcare. Right. Uh, there are lots of organizations talking about how to meet that need. Most of them involve uh, nurse educators or nurses associations, and uh, those people don't talk about uh, the international movement of nurses precisely because uh, it is not in their interest. And really wh wh what we're talking about when we're talking about developing new institutions is creating people whose job it is to think about migration and development. When we went around Washington talking about Haiti, uh, the people in Citizenship and Immigration Services rightly say development is not my job, and the people in USAID rightly say immigration is not my job, and there's nobody who's, who's sitting around thinking about how to do it. Uh, what we need in the case of uh, healthcare workers are people thinking about how to foster that movement and foster it in a way that doesn't lead to, for example, uh, fiscal brain drain. Uh, there's absolutely no reason why the human capital needs of the U.S. and the health sector can't be met in part by people arriving here with uh, health care skills acquired abroad and paying for those, uh, the acquisition of those skills themselves from this absolutely enormous gain, this arbitrage opportunity, uh, uh, the, the gigantic uh, increase in their economic prospects that occurs on arrival. I'm, more broadly, it seems to me possible, and I'd be interested in your take on this, that as the demographic time bomb hits the industrialized countries, we have more and more uh, older people and f relatively fewer and fewer active people in the labor force. So the economics will point more and more towards needing more immigrants to, to um, uh, supplement our active labor force to pay for the people in retirement and so on. Definitely. Do you think that what we're going to see is a kind of invisible effect where as the economics changes, b without knowing it, this will lead to changes in attitudes, that the people's concerns about migration will tend to drift down and drift away as you know, in various ways, you know, as you say, for example, the, short, the impending shortage uh, of healthcare workers. You know, as people uh, experience shortages in hospitals and then see migrants coming in to provide them with healthcare, or as, you know, in care homes, for example. You know, do you think that will uh, the, the, the economic benefits of migration and the necessity of migration for industrialized societies will gradually mean that people's attitudes will change? Uh, or am I just being too economically determinist? No, not at all. I've seen it happen in my own lifetime. Uh, I, I'm 40. 
when I was a kid, there was a phrase that I almost never hear anymore uh, bandied around in the U.S., which was uh, latchkey children. And I, I don't know if people in Britain talked about latchkey yeah, yeah. children, but you're referring to uh, uh, children who are alone in the afternoon or evening because mom is working. And this was a subject of great concern in the 1950s when women were working for the first time and when they were working not just being secretaries, teachers, and uh, uh, nurses, but even doing other things with their time, sometimes working late. And uh, people were worried, you know, what is going to happen to our children? Are we going to raise a generation of, of uh, somehow uh, permanently damaged young people that's going to uh, damage our long-term prospects? And these were, I don't mean to poo-poo these concerns, but they were, they were widespread, they were serious, and they've come to naught. There, since then, there have been many long-term panel studies of what happens to children when they were quote-unquote latchkey children and when they weren't, and they can't detect anything about uh, any differences in, in uh, uh, school performance, in emotional adjustment, in uh, relationships as, uh, as adults, just nothing at all. Uh, th that doesn't mean ex ante that the concerns were invalid, and I, 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 I don't want to minimize the concerns people have about migration, but it is the case that when there's huge pressure, as there was huge pressure, uh, particularly in World War II and then thereafter for women to enter the labor force, that people's attitudes tend to adjust, and it can take a long time, but, uh, but that wasn't uh, the first time it happened, and, and it won't be the last. So if we see, a, I mean, that, that suggests that for people who are, think that migration is important for developing countries, that's quite an optimistic thought, right? That, that there's a whole, um, you know, the richest countries in the world are, the economics is changing and they're going to need more migrants. And so we should expect to see some kind of evolution. It seems to me the opportunity then for us is to think about how can we ensure that developing countries are able to take advantage of that opportunity as it emerges in a way that's most effective for them, that doesn't denude them of various kinds of asset and resource, that doesn't have a fiscal brain drain as you, as you describe it, where they pay to train nurses and then we employ them. Precisely. Um, po policies that are designed for a world with movement rather than designed for some other world and, and, and uh, maintained by, uh, by higher and higher fences. Michael Clemens, thanks very much for coming on Development Drums. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, and my guest today has been Michael Clements, and the producer of Development Drums is Anna Scott. For honest living, hope God's forgiving, for I left my family for this one chance and hope, and I... I, 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 I